with me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We have a really good show for you today. We talk about the hypocrisy that's happening with Republican leadership inside the U.S. Capitol, what you need to know about how to hold them accountable, and what you need to say when you call your member of Congress right now, regardless of what party they're representing. We also dive into gun safety, gun policy reform, and what's happening with LGBTQIA rights in America. We're going to jump right in with our first guest. We have a spectacular guest. You're going to love, love, love hearing from Dr. Jamelia Taylor. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being on. One of the many things you're doing is you're president and CEO of the National WIC Association. For those people out there who aren't familiar with WIC, what's the shortest, best description? Sure. So the WIC program, known as the Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, um, has been around for almost 50 years. And this program helps to support pregnant women, um, women in the postpartum period, as well as their young children with um, supplemental nutrition, quality nutrition services, um, as well as additional supports um you know and it is essential to making sure that these families have access to adequate nutrition in such a critical time um and really helps to ensure that children thrive healthy start and yet time and time again even though this program is essential we all know it's the right thing to do it comes Mm -hmm. on the cutting block in congress particularly with republican leadership and right now it's potentially on the cutting block again. Can you give our listeners a lowdown of what politically is happening with WIC in this moment? Sure, absolutely. So I want to preface this by saying, you know, WIC has historically been a bipartisan um, program, a program that has has enjoyed bipartisan support, um, you know, for decades. And so I think it's important to sort of ground the conversation there. Um, I think, I think, you know, we don't have to explain to listeners that it is really a challenging time in Washington among our, you know, policymakers at this point in time, um, where we do see, you know, politics be, you know, I think more polarized than we've, we've seen um, in a long time. And so, um, you know, right now what's happening is that, you know, Congress is um, you know, coming out of the negotiations with the debt ceiling, um, we know that that um, the compromise deal that was made there included some spending caps, and those, um, you know, were a part of the the conversation because they needed to be in place in order for us to think through how best to pay our debts and and serve the country, um, considering so many different aspects of what it takes to fund. Um, programs um, that support the American people. And so coming out of those um, negotiations, now we're in a situation where we're having appropriators negotiate what the what the allocations should look like when it comes to actually funding those programs. And so what we're dealing with with WIC is that we're in a situation where we could see those funding caps um, really impact the ability of the program to be operating um, at at its optimal level, right? And so we know that it could mean that we could have funding shortfalls, um, meaning that we're not able to meet the growing need of 
the WIC program. Right now, we have a caseload that has increased to about 6.6 .6 million, um, which is higher than USDA, the US Department of Agriculture, their projections for 2024. And this is the, the largest caseload increase that we've seen since 2018 in the program. So during the pandemic, we've seen that more families are signing up for WIC, more families need WIC, and so we need funding to, to be available in order to meet their needs. And so that's something that we're concerned about. We're also concerned about, um, you know, the fruit and vegetable benefits that are a part of the program, right? If we're going to see a funding shortfall for WIC, that also means that we aren't going to be able to serve families with the services and supports that they need, right? And so that means that we could see the fruit and vegetable benefits that are a part of the WIC program be cut by about 56% for children and 70%. Um, for adults. And so that's also going to mean we're not, um, our families aren't going to be able to access the fresh produce um, that they need and deserve. And then another piece of this um, to add to this long list of challenges is that we could see list. Um, so the failure to adequately provide the funding for WIC could mean that we could see waiting lists, moms and children in desperate need of access to healthy foods on waiting lists for the first time in nearly three decades as part of WIC. And so we think it's absolutely unconscionable to make moms and their young children wait for access to healthcare and nutritious foods. Yeah, I mean, it's unconscionable. It's not smart. It hurts the health of the nation and the economy. Can you share a little bit with our listeners about how WIC isn't just important for getting people food on the table? It's also important for our economy as a whole. Absolutely. I mean, so obviously, look, I mean, you know, we're, we're constantly having these conversations about health care and ensuring that um, you know, the American people have access to quality health care, that they're able to, to have healthy well-beings and thrive. And so having access to nutritious foods is central to a person, particularly children and, and pregnant women and moms in our country, to be able to have access to, you know, a healthy well-being. And so, um, you know, WIC is not only important to make sure that, you know, these essential um, families um, and people in our communities have access to what they need, but also, you know, to make sure that if mom is healthy, that also means that she is able to thrive and be productive in her own life, you know, whether it's showing up to work every day, showing up, you know, with the energy and, um, you know, excitement to support and care for her children. It's essential in that way. Um, and also it helps to ensure that that young children have a healthy start. We know that when children, um, you know, that hunger is a challenge for children, particularly when it comes to their ability to learn um, and grow. And so um, all of these things have implications for a stronger economy. Um, and so WIC is essential in being a part of that. And, you know, Chris, and I also want to make another point here too. You know, you said at the beginning, um, you know, you talked about how WIC is on the chopping block here um, in this political environment. And one of the things that I continue to be challenged with in moments like this is whenever we're in a situation where we're having to make compromises and decide on, you know, how do we balance our budgets? How do we make sure um, that we're paying our debts and then also, you know, run the country in an optimal way? Why is it always that, you know, the social safety net programs, the programs that are supporting the most vulnerable among us are on the chopping block first? It should be the last program on the chopping Absolutely. block, not the first. And it is unconscionable, reprehensible, and Absolutely. completely you know, undefinably bad. 
It's really, really, really bizarre. And so everybody who's listening, call your member of Congress and say, protect WIC. Yes. WIC first. Like you put the, when you're on the airplane and you are needing oxygen, you put the, you know, oxygen mask on the parents first. Like, come Mm -hmm. on, people, what's going on here? (laughs) This is about food. What are your Mm -hmm. thoughts? Absolutely. It's about food. And you know what? This is a human right. Everyone should have access to nutritious, healthy, whole foods. And WIC has been so essential in making sure that all families, all children, all moms have access to this. And so it's really critical. Now is not the time for us to cut a program that is so essential to the health and well-being of families. Um, If anything, we should be increasing um, the funding and support for, for WIC in such a pivotal moment in our country. Yeah, it really is. Now, what sometimes people think, WIC, what kind of food support is it? Can you share a little bit? It's yeah. sci- there's a scientific panel, people, and the scientific panel researches what types of nutrition is missing and needs to be added and make sure that there's access to that food through WIC. And a lot of people don't realize that. So can you share maybe a little bit more about the background of what type of nutrition we're talking about? Yeah. So like you said, you know, we're talking about a panel that um, you know, looks at the evidence and makes recommendations based on what the most, what the healthiest, most nutritious, um, you know, food package um, should be available, you know, particularly for, you know, as we mentioned, pregnant women, um, new moms, you know, in the postpartum period, as well as their young children. So we're talking about, you know, access to um, eggs and milk, um, you know, um, also non-dairy options, you know, are also a part of the food package to support families, fresh produce, fresh fruits and vegetables, um, you know, as well as proteins, you know, lean meats. And, you know, it really is thinking about, you know, what does a balanced diet, a balanced plate um, look like, um, you know, for an individual. And there are special considerations when we think about that, especially for, you know, having targeted nutritional needs, you know, for a pregnant woman, a woman who is breastfeeding, um, or even supplementing, you know, um, her breastfeeding goals with with infant formula, um, as well as young children. And so the, the food package and, you know, the options that are available to families that are part of the WIC program are really science-based and evidence-based in their approach to making sure families have optimum nutrition. And look, this is a supplemental program. And so it's really meant for, um, you know, families to be able to use it along with their other um, benefits or grocery needs that they may also have. So it's a supplemental program, but we know that it has so many, um, such a positive impact on the health and well-being of families. And even, you know, it even has such a positive impact when we think about, for example, you know, the maternal and infant health crisis in this country, you know, WIC and having access to nutritious foods is essential um, in making sure that, um, you know, there are healthier, um, you know, pregnancy related outcomes, um, you know, in this country. And so this is really a part of a broader strategy and conversation, you know, that we're also having when it comes to addressing the maternal and infant health crisis for this country. So it's really, really essential um, as we think about the health um, outcomes and the health outlook for women and families. For sure, for sure. Speaking of which, we have three minutes left. What's the action plan that every single person in the United States of America should be doing to help protect WIC? 
Absolutely. So right now, you know, as, as we've talked about here today, you know, it is an, an inflection point for WIC and having these conversations about ensuring that we have adequate funding, um, you know, to meet the increasing caseload um, for the WIC program. And, and that translates into ensuring that families have access to, um, you know, the, the healthy foods um, and nutritional start that they need and deserve. And so I think if we could ask listeners to do anything, you know, definitely reach out to your representative representatives in Congress and, you know, particularly appropriators at this moment and make sure that they know that WIC should be fully funded in order to meet the um, increased caseload that we're seeing right now and ensure that families have access to the nutritional support that they need. And how can people get involved in your organization and support? Absolutely. Well, I mean, folks can certainly go to, you know, nwica.org and learn more about the organization, um, you know, sign up for our newsletters, um, you know, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Um, and really get all the updates on the exciting work that we're doing right now. You know, look, obviously, you know, we're focused on this this inflection point with the funding situation, but we're also continuing to think through modernization of the WIC program, um, you know, expanding access to online shopping, you know, for our WIC families, um, you know, as well as a whole host of other advancements that we've seen change, you know, to be quite honest, during the pandemic, to make WIC a more flexible program as well to meet families where they are. And we're really working as an organization to make a lot of those flexibilities permanent um, to support families over the long term. You know, how we address and, and um, you know, I think deal with public health has changed so much during the pandemic. And a part of that is really, you know, making sure that families have access to um, the flexibilities that they need in order to, you know, make sure that they can sign up for their benefits, you know, being able to use apps um, and mobile capabilities to, you know, sign up, do their online shopping, so forth and so on. And so this is really part of a full, um, you know, sort of plan and focus of, um, you know, the National WIC Association to make sure that those flexibilities stay in place. Then at the same time, you know, we're unfortunately in a situation where we're also having to advocate um, for adequate funding to make sure that our program can keep operating optimally and support families. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for leading our nation forward to support WIC and so much more. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Taylor. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. We'll be right back with our next guest talking about taxes, our favorite subject. It's important for you. We'll be back in a quick flash. Me, Kristen Ralph Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by Sarah Christofferson. I'm so thrilled that you're on because we're going to talk about taxes and you're with Americans for Tax Fairness. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, but I wish it were under happier circumstances. Yes. Well, you know, I was going to ask you a long, detailed question, but let us talk about the unhappy circumstances because now everybody's on the edge of their seats. What are the <laughs> unhappy circumstances that are starting this conversation? Yes, well, and you can tell I'm fun at parties, the way I begin conversations. Um, So what makes it an unhappy circumstance is that this week, the Tax Writing Committee in the U.S. House of Representatives, the Ways and Means Committee, rushed through a completely absurd, sort of morally unconscionable tax package that is overwhelmingly tilted towards the ultra-wealthy, billion dollar corporations and foreign investors 
and does next to nothing for regular American families, does next to nothing to help low-income children. And it just is such a travesty that it's coming on the heels of, remember, this big debt limit fight that we just went through where Republicans tried to claim the mantle of fiscal responsibility to push through cuts to families, and now they want to explode the deficit to give away tax cuts to the ultra-rich. It's ridiculous. The first question I had down to ask for you in my notes is, how could Republican leadership just pass a tax cut, again, a tax cut, out of the Ways and Means Committee that would cost taxpayers $1.1 trillion if made permanent? You know, like you just said, they were just on a lot of soapboxes about deficit reduction, and this is deficit expansion. So how? How is this happening? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of the the motto for our age is shocking, but not surprising, right? Like we have seen this cycle play out over and over with Republicans, but it's typically been like a multi-year, even a multi-decade cycle where they slash supports for working families, they slash public services that you know, regular Americans, working Americans, middle income Americans depend on whether we're talking about, you know, bridges over I-95 or education or healthcare services. And then they take that quote unquote savings and they funnel it directly into the pockets of the people in this country who need it least ultra wealthy people and majorly profitable corporations. But what kind of made this cycle so shocking is we weren't talking about a delay of years where like during the Bush era, they drove up deficits with the Bush tax cuts and the Trump tax cuts, they drove up deficits. And actually, if I can just say in a little aside, Center for American Progress did a really awesome but also sort of devastating report that looked at what is driving our deficits and it's the bush and trump tax cuts right we would not have even had to raise the debt limit had it not been for those two tax cuts but that's an aside we're sort of used to seeing this cycle play out over years and here they sort of condensed the entire cycle down into like the month of june so i think it's just it's a it's a real testament to who they value and who they don't value, right? They don't care about, in some cases, their own voters, their own constituents. They care about their donors and in some cases themselves, right? Many of these members of Congress are themselves incredibly wealthy, but it's, it again, just shocking. It's really shocking because it's the epitome of hypocrisy, what's happening right now. And that makes me annoyed deeply annoyed because the other thing is is when you give tax cuts to the already super wealthy it does nothing at all to help the economy because basically you can only buy so many sweaters so many pairs of shoes so many consumer items that will fuel the economy most people who are super wealthy when they get a tax cut that funds go into a bank where it is saved and not circulated and Right now, about 72% of our GDP is based on consumer spending. So when we have programs like WIC and SNAP, food stamps and food supports that put money directly into the economy immediately, that actually spurs our economy because it allows people to buy that food. It allows people to be paid to work in the grocery store, on the farms, moving food from place to place in trucks, trains, boats, all of the transportation ways that things are moved. In other words, when we put 
funds into programs that help families more immediately, it sparks and fuels our economy in really important ways. When we put funds into places that have a lot of people who are already wealthy, it does not spark and fuel our economy. It goes into a savings account. And yet there's this ridiculous idea that trickle-down economy happens, but it's been proven time and time again that there is no trickle-down from wealthy people into our economy. It really is just pushing that money out of economic circulation. Can you explain this in a far better way than I just explained this to our listeners? (laughs) No, I think you explained it beautifully, tragically, but yes, I think you explained it beautifully. And you know, I mean, to your point about you can only buy so many sweaters, you can only buy so many super yachts, you can only buy so many mansions. Like we have reached a stage where the ultra wealthy accumulate wealth for the sake of accumulating wealth for, you know, um, proving that they're better than the next guy. I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, but I think Elon Musk gave Jeff Bezos a statue when he outpaced him in terms of wealth. Like this is what it's about. They're, they're, needs in terms of shelter and and food and everything else is so vastly behind them that it's just wealth for the sake of wealth. And in some ways, I would almost prefer if they kept it all in bank accounts. But I think what they do instead is they, I hate to say it, but they try to buy off Supreme Court justices. They try to influence politicians. They try to take over the fifth largest social media company and turning it turn it into their own kind of right-wing <laughs> neo-nazi friendly playground. So, not only is that money not trickling down to help the rest of us exactly as you just said, but it's also having this sort of like extra really dangerous impact on our democracy. And yeah. I, you know, we we got to do something or we're in real trouble. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, it's ridiculous. So on the we got to do something, what should every listener do? So I I think I say this every time I I talk to folks and probably every time I've talked to you, and it's so cliche, but you got to call your members of Congress. You got to email your members of Congress. You've got to talk to them in the airport or if you bump into them at the grocery store or (laughs) you see them in a restaurant. Um, You know, we're not all sort of like naturally confrontational and we don't want to cause problems, but it's really important that members of Congress know we're paying attention. And groups like Moms Rising do such a phenomenal job saying you can't just listen to your donors. You can't just listen to the private equity guys who own the vineyard where you're staying. You got to listen to the rest of us. So phone calls, emails, outreach, it, it really makes a difference. Yeah, it really, really, really makes a difference, people. We've heard it time and time again from elected leaders that it makes such a huge difference when you reach out to your members of Congress. Even if your members of Congress agree with you, they want to hear from you because if they get, you know, 10 calls and then they're in the elevator with somebody who is not great on these issue areas, they'll be like, hey, you need to take action to another member of Congress because I've got 10 constituents calling me. So hello, please take action. So, you know, you're you're backing up your members of Congress who agree with you and you're pushing forward your members of Congress who are on the fence or who don't agree with you. So call either way, reach out either way to your members of Congress about this. What's the best short messaging that people should say to the member of Congress? So let me answer that, but let me also just sort of really double and triple down on what you just said. So reach out to your member of Congress, even if you know that he or she is with you, because it is so helpful to have positive reinforcement. And 
reach out to your member of Congress, even if you know that there's no way in hell he or she is going to be with you. Do not let them think or go down to the House floor and say, well, everybody in my district supports me. Everybody feels the way I do. So it, it really does matter. So I think the easiest and most kind of succinct message is these tax bills are a huge giveaway to the ultra wealthy. You're taking money out of families, out of education, out of health care, out of child care, infrastructure, and you're just funneling it into the pockets of the people who need it least. Vote yep. no. Don't do that anymore. Stand up for me, your voter. For sure, for sure, for sure. You know, why do you think more people aren't noticing what's happening with the blatant hypocrisy of the Republican leadership? We're out of one side of their mouth. They're saying we need deficit reduction. Out of the other side, they are raising the, you know, amount of money that we are spending just to pay off wealthy people. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an excellent question. And I think there are a lot of, of reasons, you know, I mean, it's this is something that really does affect people's day-to-day -day lives, but it can feel very distant. It can feel like, oh, more of the same happening in DC. And especially when the world is sort of so chaotic right now. I mean, we're having historic things happening with the former president of the United States across the board, right? It can feel very hard to get engaged. And the only thing I would say is, and people are tired and I get that. I am so tired too. Um, but I, I just keep coming back to, it really does matter. And, and, we see the consequences when these tax cuts go to Jeff Bezos instead of going to help a mom feed her kids, right? For sure. And and that's the last thing I want to talk with you about. We don't have very much time left, but there are trade-offs. When we hear tax cuts to the wealthy, the policies that we need the most, that fuel our economy and our families the most, that lift our health the most, are put at risk and are often cut. So what's at risk? What's on the line right now? I mean, so you've you said it exactly right. And what sort of is most enraging or mind-boggling is when someone has the audacity to tell you we need to cut Social Security benefits or we need to cut Medicare or we need to take away health care because we can't afford it. We have to be fiscally responsible. Well, I want to be fiscally responsible, but we have so much money. We have bankrupted ourselves by giving the ultra wealthy and these hugely profitable corporations money they do not need, subsidizing them for things they would do anyway, um, sometimes subsidizing the absolute worst sort of actors, right? Think about private equity that comes in, guts a, a business, kills jobs, and, and sucks up all the profit, right? We cannot have a tax code that subsidizes that and then turn around and say, oh, I'm sorry, seniors, oh, I'm sorry, um, you know, young families, depending on WIC, we just can't afford it. And that is the frame that I feel like we have been in in this country for a really long time, but it is not based in reality. The reality is we can absolutely afford to take care of our people. Absolutely, we can. And we can't afford not to. Again, it hurts our economy when people can't make ends meet, don't have enough to put food on the table, when childcare costs more than college and we don't have paid family medical leave. For example, that hurts our economy. So these policies that the Republican leadership right now in Congress are pushing forward to spend more by giving tax cuts to the very wealthy are ridiculous 
And they're also anti-business and anti-economy. <laughs> a lot of people don't realize that. So thank you so much for being on. One last time, can you give people sort of their next action step? Because I know now everybody's fired up. They're ready to call their member of Congress. What exactly should they say? So we are expecting a vote in the House on this GOP tax package. And the, the talking point is really simple. Vote no on this <laughs> GOP tax package and instead expand the CTC, help working families, help low-income families, invest in our country, but ultimately vote no on this GOP tax package and I'm a voter and I'm paying attention. That is the easiest message ever. Vote no on the GOP tax package. It hurts families, it hurts businesses, and it hurts our economy. Boom. All right. Well, thank you for being on. Thanks for all you're doing. Thank you for keeping track of what's going on, the hypocrisy and the moments of need for our voices in action. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. We'll be right back talking about gun safety reform, why it's so important and how we need to take action because guns are now the leading cause of death for our children and adolescents in America. We'll be back in a quick flash. with me, Kristen Ralph Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by one of our very favorite guests, Gloria Pan, also of Moms Rising. Welcome, Gloria. I am glad to be back. I'm so glad you're back too. So, Gloria, speaking of being back, we have had an interesting couple of years politically, to put it lightly. In that interesting couple of years, there's a lot of need to keep the faith, to embrace hope, to be persistent in our understanding that change is possible. What's keeping you going and giving you hope? Well, I can give you um, two reasons. Uh, the first reason is I look at our kids, right? I have two children, they're young adults, and I just feel like they are wired differently and the world that um, they expect and that they will lead on in the future is very different from what we're seeing now. And when they step up into leadership, it is going to open up all of these new opportunities and it's gonna be hopeful and it's gonna be wonderful because our kids are gonna be the future and what I'm seeing is nothing but positive. Nothing, that is true. There's so much hope in the future and there's so much hope in the future future because moms, dads, caregivers are raising that hope into the future. So thank you people who are raising other people who are listening. What else is keeping you going? There have been some incremental wins along the way. And I'm wondering if that's helping you out. Um, I don't know about incremental wins, Kristen. You know what I've been thinking about a lot? Um, yesterday, um, we had our first ever Chicago in-person meetup with Moms Rising members. And it was so great to be able to meet with members and to talk with them and to hear their stories about the things that they're experiencing and thinking about now and where they would like to see some progress to help their families, right? And this question actually came up. What keeps us going? What are the signs that things can go in the right direction? And what we talked about is the fact that care policies are actually like front and center for so many lawmakers. 
Kristen, you and I have been working together for a really, really long time. But actually, in the grand scope of things, in the fact that our country is almost 250 years old, um, you and I have been working together for over 10 years, right? But still, 10 years ago, when we first started working together, actually, it was even more than that, but still relatively short length of time, nobody was talking about care policies. Nobody was talking about paid family medical leave. Nobody was talking about the cost of childcare or the heavy cost of student loans, all of these things. Nobody was talking about it. And in fact, do you remember back in the day, it was still referred to as, oh, maternity leave, that very, very narrow definition. But in, the sh in, in 10 years, which is really a blink of an eye, it is the center of so much thinking and policymaking among our leaders. And that is a huge sign of hope. And I think actually pretty dramatic. I agree. And that is an example of incremental win. You know, the incremental win of shifting the narrative piece by piece, conversation by conversation, story shared by story shared over time. So that now we have every national leader talking about the need for a care infrastructure for maternal health equity and for justice. That's a big deal. So Gloria, group hug, group hug, group hug. Um, but there's so much more work to do, right? We are making incremental wins. We're moving the conversation. We're shifting the narrative. We're passing small bits of legislation. And there's so much more work to do. In the so much more work to do, one of the things that I have to hold closely in my thoughts is that democracy was never meant to be a spectator sport. It was never meant to be one and done. It needs continuous engagement so that the policies really adapt to meet the also evolving and always evolving contributions and needs of the constituency, the people of the United States of America. So as we're looking at what are some of the biggest priorities facing us, what are you hearing from the Moms Rising members? I am hearing constantly over and over again. And let's just acknowledge the fact that I do lead on gun control at Moms Rising, right? So um, because of the specific role that I play, um, the kinds of stories that I hear most often, you know, is related to the issue that I cover. But I think that the issue of safety is much broader than just gun violence, right? There's also, you know, safety, um, just physical safety beyond just guns, the physical safety of being able to, you know, go into your community and not feel like you're being hated on, right? The physical safety of being able to um, go and vote and feel like you're not going to be blocked from voting because of, you know, whatever weird barrier um, local lawmakers are putting in your way. I mean, you know, safety, I think, is a really, really big issue right now. And a lot of people don't realize, but right now there are more guns than people in the United States of America. And actually guns are the leading cause of child and adolescent death in America. And that just makes me ill. I mean, I can't believe it because this is preventable. In that policy area, what are the top things that every person should be calling their member of Congress to do immediately? Oh, my goodness. Do you want to hear my analysis? Yeah, I right. want to hear every analysis because I love your brain. All right. So let's just say, okay, in terms of policy, there is only one policy right now that we want to talk about, and that is a ban on military style assault weapons in high capacity magazines. Okay. It's not that we're going to get it anytime soon. Um, last year, you know, we had the historic passage of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which is a gun policy legislation um, that's generational. We haven't had any kind of movement on gun policy in so, so very long. And so to be able to pass that last year was incredible. However, 
what that policy um, in the act does is so small compared to the magnitude of our gun violence epidemic right now. We need just so much more. We need comprehensive policy change. However, we're not going to get that anytime soon. And the reason why is because we're having a cultural problem. So that's why, well, in terms of like, we're not going to get the assault weapons ban anytime soon because number one, right now Congress is like, well, okay, well, last year we did this. So maybe we can take a breather on gun policy right now. But the second thing is the assault weapon is just such a symbolic thing for people who oppose gun policy reform. It is a cultural symbol, right? Um, assault weapons literally um, are adapted from weapons that were designed for war. They are adapted from battlefield weapons that are designed to kill people, as many people as possible, in as short a time as possible. They are horrible. And the fact that they are in wide, widespread civilian circulation is appalling. And the fact that they are actually um, one of the, they continue to be the number one um, best-selling weapon, one of the best-selling weapons right now, is also really appalling because of this culture around what guns mean. So we want to talk about an assault weapons ban because we want to um, talk about what the culture is right now. What do gun rights mean? I mean, are gun rights more important than First Amendment rights? Are they more important than the right to be safe in every way? I don't think so. And we need to have that conversation. And the policy discussion around an assault weapons ban gives us um, a platform and and the arena to be able to have that rights versus right conversation. Yeah, like I think I should have the right to be safe in my community and to have my kids go safely to school, my kids go safely to the grocery store, my kids go safely to the movie theater. And I think my right to be safe trumps somebody else's right to own a weapon of mass destruction, really. I mean, you said it really well. When these laws were originally written in the Constitution, um, they were not intended to allow guns everywhere of all kinds of different capacities all the time, right? Like, we don't allow people to own tanks and fighter jets. That's not safe. Why should we allow people to own military-style assault weapons with high-capacity magazines that are just killing machines and are not necessarily even useful for hunting and fishing and all the kinds of things that people would need to use um, safe, respectful guns in. I just, I'm appalled. What is your take? Well, there's a very interesting tension right now, right? Um, the Supreme Court's latest gun decision was the Bruin decision. And it did two things. Number one, it opened up the way, it, it basically said that you can, you, 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 you have the right to be armed outside your home, right? And it opened up the way to dismantle a lot of the, um, gun safety policies that are already in place uh, as flimsy as they are. The second thing that the Bruin decision did was um, that it based a lot of this on, you know, this uh, uh, originalism, right? And it basically says that if you're looking at a gun safety law, you have to actually go back all the way to, um, you know, the founding of the country, like, you know, what did gun safety and how was it understood at the time? And if it wasn't what the founding fathers intended, then it should not exist today, which is kind of really ridiculous. But the fact of the matter is that that guns and weapons have always been regulated in one form or the other. So the fallout from the Bruin decision right now is still 
being worked out. But there is this very interesting tension that guns have always been regulated. And if Bruin um, is based on originalism, does originalism help us keep gun safety laws and regulate guns? Does it help us dismantle laws that actually loosen um, you know, gun policy? I don't know. Um, that all of this is still being worked out, but there is this really interesting tension. And I think right now, gun policy is being dismantled, but there's also the opportunity to actually strengthen gun policy and to actually put more limits around guns. We shall see. Yeah, we shall see. And one key thing that you've raised and many historians have raised that we only have a couple minutes left, but I just want to make sure we have time for is that the origin of the gun laws is really based in racism in the United States of America. And we need to stop that immediately. And do you want to share a little bit about that? Sure. You're talking about um, the Second Amendment, right? Exactly. Um, okay. So this, I know we only have a few minutes left, but um, so you have a very, very short history lesson that I will repeat because everybody should know this. Um, you know, the Second Amendment has always been kind of mysterious to historians. It was just kind of like thrown in there, right? Um, but there's new scholarship coming out, and um, the latest is um, Madison's Militia by the constitutional law professor called Bogus, who basically traces the history of the Second Amendment and why it was put into the Constitution. And he basically points out how, how at the time, you know, the the language of, of our new country that was based on enlightenment principles of democracy and freedom really didn't sit very easily with the fact that the southern states' economies were based on slavery, right? So when our country was coming together, you know, after the war, and they were trying to figure out what is our, our, our government going to look like, the southern colonies were very, very worried that during that process, there would be um, things put in place that would basically outlaw slavery. And so, and and most specifically, they were worried that um, there might be like a national army. And if there's a national army and Washington calls from across the country, you know, the young men to come and serve in this national army, there would be nobody left at home. And if that were the case, who was going to serve in the slave militias? And, you know, at the time, Virginia was the most important colony. And at the time, Virginia was 40% enslaved people. And the only way that they could control that very untenable and unfair and horrible situation was through these slave patrols. So they really needed guarantees that they would be able to have these slave patrols in place. So um, the Second Amendment, it was really about slave patrols, not about Minutemen. That was a marketing strategy from the NRA. And that was not even like an idea until the late 1970s and the 1980s, when the NRA basically put into uh, put into place and started executing a very long-term, very deep-pocketed campaign to basically tell us that it was about Minutemen, but it simply is not true. And this is the importance of history, knowing history, knowing accurate history, and I hope it compels people who are on the fence about whether or not they should stand for gun control reform to stand up and speak out because this is about gun safety. It's about community safety. And it's also about making sure 
that we do not continue to have absolutely racist, awful laws on the books in the United States of America. This is a big deal, people. So I hope everybody right now calls your member of Congress, tells them to have a military-style assault weapon ban, a high-capacity magazine ban, background checks, and more, and to really start working on real gun control reform. As we go, Gloria, do you have any last words of advice for our listeners? Yes. History is important, and I strongly urge everyone to go out and buy uh, Madison's Militia, this hidden history of the Second Amendment by Carl Bogus. It's absolutely um, critical reading if you care about gun violence in this country, and a second book called actually The Second by Carol Anderson. Um, these two books are very, very important and critical. We need to understand our history if we want to change our trajectory into the future. So true. Thank you so much, Gloria Pan, for being on with us. Thanks for all you do. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Next up, we're talking about the discrimination that LGBTQIA families are facing and how to help make it stop. We'll be back in just a quick moment. with me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by Julie Kai with the Center for Economic and Policy Research. She is a spectacular guest. You're going to love hearing from her. Welcome, Julie. Thanks, Kristen. And thanks for having me today. I'm really thrilled that you're on because it is Pride Month. And right now, we are looking at what's happening in every type of family, LGBTQIA families across America. And you just did a report in the past year about how the lack of universal childcare and other family benefits disproportionately hurts LGBTQIA parents and caregivers. Can you share with us a couple of the top lines from that report? Sure. I wanted to quickly share some of the brief story on what's happening in the data collection yeah. on the LGBT community, because like a year ago, as we read some of the report that put up by a lot of organizations, my colleagues and I at CEPA were wondering what's happening uh, in this community because there's a lot of work that need to be done, but we really need more data collection on this community. And then that's um, why we started to put up some report on LGBTQ community, especially when it comes to childcare access, and what's happening in their labor market outcomes. And I guess one of the big takeaway from that is compared to their non-LGBT counterparts, those LGBT parents are facing um, more challenges in terms of childcare access. And there's a disproportionate barriers that face them in terms of getting affordable childcare, not only accessibility matters, but the affordability that play a huge role in their daily life in terms of taking care of their kids. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that LGBTQIA families experience increased disproportionate discrimination in wages and hiring and other ways, engaging in the workforce and our communities. Can you share a little bit about the types of discrimination that you're seeing in childcare? Honestly, we cannot test directly uh, what type of discrimination that might happening, but you know, in an econometric terms, after we controlling for a bunch of individual characteristics and workplace related 
characteristic if we're still seeing a lot of uh, significant disparities between LGBT parents and non-LGBT parents, we might kind of attribute that to some sort of workplace discrimination. But in this report, descriptively, what we found is that for those with kids under age 18, there are disproportionate LGBT parents that have childcare issues. That's about 10 percentage point higher than their non-LGBT adults. That's and, big. And they also face more hardships, right? It's not entirely surprising, but it could be because they are more likely to work on low-wage job or uh, they tend to be younger. So, you know, wealth might take time to accumulate. So now, now nowadays, like childcare is so costly. So that yeah. might lead to kind of affordability issues. So, as you said, childcare is really costly. Childcare costs more than college. And I know one of the things that your study found is that financial hardship is common among all adults experiencing childcare challenges because it is expensive, but significantly higher challenges are being experienced by LGBTQIA adults. And do you want to share about what that means? What type of challenges are happening? Oh, sure. So I think like, let me start quickly on their education level, because one thing that we found a bit interesting is that actually LGBT and non-LGBT caregivers are similarly educated. You know, like 60% of LGBT caregivers have actually completed at least some college. And about 65% of their non-LGBT counterparts do so. So, you know, in terms of education level, they are share similar backgrounds, but, and actually they are no more likely to be unemployed. I don't know if you found it surprising, but actually they are, they are more likely to be working. That's what we found from the data, but they are actually also more likely to live in household with poverty wage or uh, their earnings below the federal poverty line. So what that means is that their job quality matter. Because, you know, when we asked, uh, I mean, when people asked um, in a survey, what are the, what is the number one solution parents took when dealing with childcare challenges, the LGBT parents were saying that cutting hours of paid employment is their number one solutions. They, they will take when, you know, dealing with childcare issues. And that's the same for their non-LGBT counterparts. But you know what, over half of the U.S. workforce are paid by the hour. So working reduced hours may mean less take-home pay for this group of people. So they have to really work reduced hours to care for their kids if they cannot send their kids to daycare or childcare. So that might be an issue. And in another report, what we found is that LGBT workers facing a more likely more likely to face discrimination in terms of workplace uh, when it when it comes to work scheduling issues. So they might be more likely to work erratic erratic work hours. So that could also impact their time. Yeah, for sure. What are the solutions? Did the study look at solutions? Because this is ridiculous and unfair. What solutions are out there? Well, I think it's quite obvious. 
but there are certain policy solutions or innovations that could be helpful. But it really depends on you know political will. Um, but, you know, right now, so for example, like pay leave. Actually, pay leave is the second response they took, say when they have to deal with childcare issues. So for LGBT parents, they said they have to take unpaid leave to care for their kids when childcare is not possible for them. But so we need paid family medical leave for everybody across the United States of America, no matter where people live, where they work, or who they are, or what type of family. That is really important, that the paid family medical leave legal description needs to be inclusive of all families at the state level, at the national level, even at the city and at the county level, and at the level of actually workplaces. Right now, 80% of low-wage workers don't have access to paid family medical leave because they don't live in a place with this policy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people cannot, people just want to live or, or even play in a state where having a babies or, you know, caring for someone would not really make them financially insecure. And like you said, you know, employer, some employer may not be having that incentive to pay employees while they are on leave not to mention when it comes to you know self-identification of sexual orientation so federal mandate is really key there to have um you know to combat to combat the state discriminations and it's so important i mean paid family medical leave we're the only industrialized nation in the world without this critical policy in place and um, studies show that it doesn't just help families, it also helps the economy, it helps businesses, it helps taxpayers, and it helps save lives. We have one of the highest maternal mortality rates of all industrialized nations too. So it's really important um, to get a national inclusive paid family medical leave policy passed immediately. Sounds like though, also we need the Equality Act, which is about to be reintroduced and is a non-discrimination act so that people can't be discriminated against based on if they're part of the LGBTQIA community. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. And actually for majority of LGBTQ workers, I would say an inclusive environment is very key for them and it would be not entirely surprising given historical and ongoing discrimination against this um, community, especially LGBT, LGBT parents. So I think that would be that would be a very um feasible solution down the road. But uh, like you said, the pay leave policy, I mean having that as a federal mandate is so important to really address this issue, not only this community, but uh, parents as a whole. For sure. And are there other types of policies that are good for solving this issue? Yeah, so like I said, the schedules that work ads, I don't know if you heard of that before, uh, that has mm-hmm. been discussed a little bit. And because right now, you know, with jobs that have become unstable, and in job hours vary quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of firms are willing to take the risk. So, you know, they are kind of just adopt labor saving strategies to save costs. So ultimately treat their employees at their discretion, not to mention LGBT uh, communities. So, you know, having that 
federal mandate of labor protection is really key. But right now, it's only a lot of localities, not even states, only one state. And several localities have implemented that kind of fair scheduling laws that could protect workers, low-wage workers. Uh, but I certainly see there would be a promise for LGBT communities that would benefit from this type of federal mandate. For sure. Is there hope? Do you have hope after doing this report? The report is really depressing, you know? So is there hope? Well, I think so. Yes. I mean, uh, one last thing I would mention for people, researchers, advocates who are interested in this issue or keep pushing forward, actually the Brookings Institute and some other agencies, including CIPA, are thinking to put more report and effort to advocate for more high quality data collection mm-hmm. uh, to encourage researchers to study this because we don't without a solid evidence we cannot really make a case for federal action uh, the end of the month brookings will be hosting a webinar or in-person event that uh, that will be talking about data collection on lgbt communities so yeah, there's certainly a hope there, but uh, like I said, political will always yeah. part. So there is hope that we can find out what's happening and make changes that are needed for everyone to thrive, including LGBTQIA parents and children. Um, and then there's a push to keep pushing to make sure that we have inclusive paid family medical leave, that we have access to affordable, high ch- quality childcare for every family, and that childcare workers of all backgrounds are paid fairly, and that we have things passed like the Equality Act and the Fair Scheduling Act, and all of these policies together are the change that we need. It's not one single issue or one single policy that's going to get us to a solution, but sort of working and keeping that political will building and growing over time to make sure we're building that inclusive policies that lift our whole country, not just some people. Um, How can people, we just have a couple seconds left, how can people find this report if they want to see it? We put our report at cpr.net. We are going to put up more report down the road surrounding LGBT communities and their well-being. So yeah, I mean, audience are welcome to check out at cpr.net. Thank you so much. Thank you for being on. Thank you for all you do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Sure, Kristen. Thanks so much for having me today. Well, that's it for our show today. Thanks so much for tuning in to the top topics facing our nation in a way that requires the most boring disclaimer in the history of planet Earth. Here goes. Views expressed on this show are those of the individual speakers and should not be attributed to Moms Rising, to this station, or to any news or social media service that may disseminate a recording of this show to the public or to any segment of the public. Boom! We'll catch you next week. We're gonna fight for love.